Good morning. Good morning, Trinity. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away, by, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Tanya, thank you for reading that. <clears throat> Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. Privileged to have you here, especially if you've never joined us before. We are a newer church. We have been around for about two years. Fourteen of those months have been through COVID, and so we kind of feel like we are a newer church as well. Uh, so welcome to you. Uh, this is a new facility for us. We've been here for a couple of months. We were meeting at Design 39 just down the street. Now we've been partnering with Maranatha as we come into this new season of being indoors and reopening and rebuilding. So welcome to each of you. I feel a little bit like a boxer with this thing on. I kind of got my reps, my wraps on, and I'm ready to go, right, get into the pulpit. But as you know, I broke my hand about three weeks ago. I've got about three weeks left in this thing. And so if I get a little awkward while I'm preaching with the black hand and, you know, things going left and right, listen, just bear with me. But I got about three weeks left. So thank you for the love and the care and the prayer. Many of you have been asking how I'm doing. 
Um, my family has returned. I have made it through the two weeks with them on the East Coast, right? I'm doing okay. My wife is over here, so I'm thankful for the family to be back as well. We're in a series that we have entitled, My Heart Cries Out, and we're looking at the cry for perspective. If you've got a phone, I'd encourage you to keep it open. Psalm 73 is a beautiful uh, psalm. It's a longer psalm, but it's got an incredibly helpful and clear narrative that I'm going to try to take you through as we jump into this today. One of my favorite biblical characters is a little-known disciple of Jesus. His name is Bartimaeus. We are introduced to a man by the name of Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus comes into Jericho. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus functionally is homeless. Uh, We're introduced to him as a blind beggar. He realizes that he needs some help. And he hears that Jesus is a possibility of being a savior and a helper. And so he cries out. uh, He says to him, "Uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as Jesus is walking through this crowd, he hears him and he stops and he calls Bartimaeus to himself. And he has this very pointed conversation. He essentially just says to him, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus looks at him and says, Rabbi, I want to recover my sight. And what he says is, I want to see again. Help me see again. And in the story, Jesus gives him new eyes, but Jesus also gives him new perspective. Jesus helps him see all of life in light of this reality that Jesus is a redeemer and a savior. Not only does he get physical new eyes that day, but he gets a new perspective. And see, Psalm 73 is a remarkably honest account of one man's search for perspective. He's kind of being blown left. He's blowing left, right. He's going this way. He's going that way. He is looking for something to anchor his soul. Now, here at Trinity, one of the things that we have said from the very beginning is we want to be a place where people can come and search, where they can bring their doubt and confusion. And Psalm 73 is evidence that Christianity says that's okay. Because in this journey, in this man's journey, you're going to find a lot of pessimism and doubt and confusion at the beginning, but it's going to give way to stability and joy and delight by the end. So three things in this man's journey and maybe your journey and mine. Number one, we're going to look at this crisis of faith. Number two, we'll look at a point of clarity. And number three, we're going to look at once that clarity comes, what it looks like to actually not just know about Jesus, but to treasure him. At this point of clarity leads to treasuring. So crisis, clarity, and Jesus, Jesus Christ. Under part one, let's look again at verse one. Crisis of faith, verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I want you to notice that this psalm in verse 1, it begins rather confidently, doesn't it? It says, uh, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is him saying, I know this truth. Intellectually, I can assent to it. I can affirm this. I've grown up in a community where we rally around this God, where this God rallies around us. He understands that Israel is in unique covenant relationship with these people. God is in covenant with them. He goes, I understand that God is close to those who are pure in heart. And yet, right away in verses 2 and 3, we crack the door open on his questions and his concerns. Essentially, he says, yes, I have heard it. Yes, I have studied this, but... As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Now, there's a writer by the name of J. Kim. He says, following Jesus usually begins simply enough. 
We believe and receive the gospel story, and we learn to live as God's beloved. The early days of faith feel as light and free as a paper airplane. But as life marches on, the crease patterns become more complex. Questions about the Bible, the church, and our stories begin to populate the page. Soon enough, navigating faith feels nearly impossible. In frustration, we crumple up the paper and we stop folding altogether. See, the writer of Psalm 73, he's got a lot of questions, and maybe you are carrying a lot of questions. Maybe I'm carrying my own questions. And many people within Western Christianity have entered into this unique season of spiritual reckoning. Maybe you have recognized this. Maybe you've read about it. It is being called the season of deconstruction. Deconstruction is where you've grown up within the church. Most likely it's been a part of your tradition, it's been a part of your faith, but you're starting to walk away at a rapid pace because when you look inside Christianity, it's too ideological, it's too culturally infused, uh, maybe it's too geographic as in kind of the, the original South, kind of the Bible Belt. Maybe it's been infused into part of your own culture so you can't distinguish between your nationality and between your religion, what you believe and what you've grown up in. Maybe you've had people around you who are too narrow, too limited, too legalistic, or maybe it's simply that Christianity Christianity isn't answering the questions that modern people are starting to ask. And so there's a disenfranchisement. There's a deconstructing of Christian faith. Let me simply say, and this will be room for another sermon, some deconstruction is very, very good. Sometimes we need to get away from all of the clutter, all of the traditions, all of the things that are uh, confusing the true essence of the gospel and see it for what it really is. Deconstruction can actually be a vibrant thing, but oftentimes it's not. People are just simply walking away because they're weary, because they're tired, because they've become disillusioned, but they don't want to step into the centerpiece of Christianity and get to know the real Jesus. But while some people have ideological Right? or philosophical reasons that they are walking away, most of the people who make a decision to leave the faith do so for very personal reasons. Something personal has happened. And this personal pain causes a personal point of crisis in their life. Look again at verse 2. The writer says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. What was the cause of his crisis? He's very honest, and he says it's envy, doesn't he? He says it's envy. He became envious of the lifestyles and the opportunities and the prosperity of his friends and his neighbors, especially those who did not follow the God of Israel, but seemed to have everything. Glance at verse 14, a little bit later in his story. He says, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, he looks at his life. He looks at his difficulties. He looks at his pain. He looks at the pile of bills that he's got to pay. He looks at the turmoil at work. Doesn't love his job. He's looking at all these things, and he's saying, look, I'm trying to follow this God. This God's supposed to be faithful to me. At verse 1, I know that he's faithful to the pure in heart, but if I look at my life, I don't see his faithfulness. I don't see his consistency. I don't see his goodness. But when I look at their lives, they don't even know this God. And they seem to have everything. Or he sees something, and it causes a deep envy in his life. When he looks at the elites of his day, all of the beautiful people, as we might call them, all of the beautiful people seem to have everything, a life of blessing. And he just cries out, how is this fair? How is this good? How is this right? 
How can I trust you if this is the case, if this is really the state of things? Let me talk for a moment about our city. San Diego is an incredibly beautiful place to live, is it not? We love living in this city. This has been a wonderful place for our family. But the sensory overload that translates into a spiritual perspective is very real. Consider that. Right? The sensory overload translates into a spiritual perspective in your life is very real. It does not take much for you to kind of wander through various neighborhoods, kind of see the way in which people live, look at their homes, look at their pools. When I take my kids, I got three of them. We go to some of these beautiful neighborhoods. I go, look, son, get some good grades, all right? This is what we need from you. I'm on the pastor's salary. We need you to help us out. I got three kids. I got three options. We're holding out for each of them to do well. But they look at it too and they go, huh, look at this. Look at the lifestyle of some people. Look at the way in which they play. Look at the extra time that they seem to have. And also in San Diego, there are a lot of beautiful people. Look at the way in which they live. They present themselves. Look at their bodies. It looks like so much prosperity. It looks like they, they eat so well and they just have so much fun. And it looks like just from the perspective on the outside, it looks like they have everything. At least that's what it looks like with our eyes. Look at verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Sensory overload translating into a very real spiritual perspective. Tim Keller writes, to envy is to want somebody else's life. It's to feel not just that, that, that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do and that God has not been fair. Envy is spiritual self-pity that forgets your sin and what you actually deserve from God. One of my mentors used to consist, consistently say, we don't deserve a better life than the one that we've been given. Think about that. I don't deserve a better life than the one I've been given. This is what Christianity says. All that you have is gift. All that you have is mercy and grace. And yet, envy is where I look at the world, I look at what you have, I look at what he has, she has, the way in which they live and play, and I go, man, I want that. And especially if they don't know the God that I serve. He's supposed to be the God of plenty. He's supposed to be the God of fulfillment. He's supposed to be the God of happiness. He's supposed to be the God who's, who's, who's in charge of all things. And I'm sitting here going, but they don't even love you. I love you. Why do they get so much blessing? Why is my life so hard? I mean, these are consistent themes that each of us wrestle with. And you drive down the street and you see it, you feel it, right? The sensory overload that translates into your own spirit. If we're honest, this is why social media can be so spiritually destructive, because of envy. I want that life. Not only do I want that life, but I envy it, and I don't want you to have it. I don't think you deserve it. What have you done to deserve that life? God ought to bless me. You see, and envy was essentially the original sin in the garden. And they had everything. They had everything that they needed, and yet envy was so strong that it derailed this original beautiful plan, so that it derailed all of what God was intending to do with these first two people. They wanted what God had. What God had given them was not enough, and they envied it, and they wanted it, and they tried to take it. Envy is so strong. That's why it's not surprising that this guy says, my feet almost stumbled when I just simply opened my eyes, and I looked at, around at the world around me. See, the psalmist says, God, are you watching? These folks are dripping with pearls, and they're also dripping with pride. 
And this does not make sense. I trusted you, and difficulty was the result. They ignore you, and they only seem to get more blessing. And all of this confusion kind of leads to this culmination point in verse 13. This is very important where he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Man, he's so honest. What he's essentially saying is, what in the world was the point? And what he begins to see, and we'll get here in point two, what he begins to see is that actually he was serving God so that God would serve him. He was not serving God so that he could simply have a relationship and enjoy him. He wanted something from God. God, this obedience is contingent. Right, this is, I want you to return what I'm giving to you. And when he doesn't get the return, whatever that return was, prosperity, money, fulfillment, happiness, those people are getting it. He goes, man, all in vain have I been following you. You ever felt like that? When it comes to your Christianity, when it comes to God, when it comes to your expectations of what the God of Christianity is supposed to do in your life, all in vain have I followed you. This is not paying off, is what he says. Right. The psalmist realizes that his faith was not a way to serve God, but it had morphed into a way to get God to serve him. Crisis of faith. But things begin to shift for this man. So let's go to point two. Point two is this point of clarity. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's trying to make sense of his life. He's trying to make sense of their prosperity. He's trying to make sense of his own pain. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. To pick up on Keller again, Christianity teaches that the first step in emerging from the black sinkhole of envy and resentment is actually worship. See, envy is alarmingly self-centered, isn't it? It's all about you. It's all about your perspective. It's about, all about your entitlement. It's all about what you want. It's about saying, you don't deserve it. I deserve it. I want it. You don't need it. I want something better. And there's this envy, is this blackness and bitterness that wells up when you drive down the street of your favorite neighborhood. He sees that in his own life. It's a black hole. And worship, by its very nature, is designed to shift your perspective because worship takes the focus off of you and it actually places it on something that's more worthy and more noble and more beautiful than yourself. But let me just press you for a moment. This, at times, is why worship is so difficult even for us because we come into this place and worship is still about me. It's about my preference. It's about my music choice. It's about my people. It's about my time. It's about my experience. It's about what I get out of it. And it has ceased to become worship because it's not about him anymore. It's become about me. And he goes, when I came into the sanctuary, man, and our sanctuary is a gymnasium. It has nothing to do with the space, does it? We were in a multi-purpose room before. It has nothing to do with the space. It has to do with the heart attitude. I've come into this space to get my attention off of myself because everything is about me. Because when I come to worship, finally something shifts. My attention goes on to something bigger and better and more noble. But it's so difficult even for us here in the West because worship is so often another consumeristic thing. We have come to get what we want out of it. I'm guilty of that too. 
But the psalmist, he views it differently, very differently. You've heard this before, but as human beings, we are always looking and listening for a great story. You are looking for a storyline to make sense of your life, and the dominant storylines in our moment and our day have to do with fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, authenticity. And you are looking for storylines that are going to allow those dots to be connected. You are looking for anything that you can latch onto that's going to give you that happiness, that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that deep meaning, that freedom. What storyline can I find? Is it with my work? Is it with her? Is it with him? Is it with a marriage? Is it with a family? Is it with trying to, uh, you know, build up my own reputation? What is that thing that's going to give me that thing that I want? These dominant storylines. We're all living into a story. And yet an encounter with the living God introduces this alternative storyline. Coming into his presence brings this truer perspective into this man's life, and it can bring that into your life. Christopher Ashe says this, our senses tell us very forcibly that people who care nothing for God can do very well in life. He's being honest. Only when we come to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the temple, the sanctuary, are we reminded of the great gospel truths that we must hold dear, that what is seen is not what is final, that we live by faith and not by sight, and that the day will come when all who trust the living God will be vindicated and the apparent prosperity of the wicked will come to a terrible end. He says, when I came into the sanctuary, my perspective radically shifted. If you were to walk into the original sanctuary, the original temple, you would have seen a lot of different things that we do not see in our space right here today. You would have seen beautifully decorated and ornate curtains. You would have seen specific designated spaces that the priest and the priest alone could enter, spaces like the Holy of Holies. You would have seen a table set apart for the bread of presence, communion, right, fellowship with this God. You would have seen, um, you would have seen a lampstand, and most strikingly, you would have walked into the sanctuary, and you would have seen an altar for sacrifice. And every time you walked in, you would have been, been reminded that to have fellowship and communion with God, a spotless sacrifice would have to die so that your sin could be forgiven, so that you could have a restored relationship with this God. And so it's actually no wonder that when you get to John 2, 19, and we're introduced to Jesus, Jesus actually goes out of his way to call himself the sanctuary. He actually literally uses the word temple, which is this place of encountering God himself. And then it's also no wonder that at the center of our understanding of Jesus is an altar. And it's a sacrifice that we have come to know as the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what the cross tells us is that, this, we, that without a sacrifice of the one true lamb, Jesus himself, that we would be eternally lost and we would be separated from him forever. Look at verse 16. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I mean, he walks into the sanctuary and all of the world's storylines are exposed. He sees power for what it is. He sees control for what it is. He sees stability for what it is. He sees reputation for what it is. All of these storylines are exposed in the reality of this God of mercy and grace and love. He begins to see for the first time what the writer of Hebrews says. And he says, we, when we follow Jesus, we don't simply live by sight, but we live by 
faith. He sees all of these things, quote, in verse 20, he sees them as a dream. He goes, man, that stuff's not real. He goes, it's like a mirage. He goes, those things won't make me whole or happy. And he concludes, like, without God, we literally have nothing. And friends, let me be more specific. What he sees when he sees that altar is he comes to understand that one day the wicked are going to have to give an account for their life. Everybody has to give an account for their life. And what he comes to feel in his soul, he goes, there's no covering for them. Nobody stood in their place. But there's no sacrifice. There's no atonement. There's no substitute. They're going to have to give an account for their life, and they're going to stand before this God of holiness, and they're going to be fully exposed, and everything will end at that moment. It will all be wiped clean. And there's such terror in his heart because he begins to see what's really going on. He understands what it means to be connected to this God. This God is life. As one writer put it, he realizes that the rich without God are on their way to being eternally poor and that celebrities without God are on their way to being endlessly ignored. He begins to see like all that matters is Jesus. We sang this a moment ago. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is what it means to adopt a gospel perspective on the world, on your life, on the things that matter to you. To have your hope, to have your happiness, to have your joy and meaning and identity and salvation, your entire perspective bound up within a crucified Jewish peasant who claims to be the savior of the world seems foolish to those who are outside of Christ. To give up and dismiss the world's definitions of the good life in favor of Jesus is a fool's errand to those who have never tasted grace, but to those who have. See, as Jesus subverts and turns over these Western definitions of fulfillment and happiness, we begin to see that he is the meaning of life now. He's also the meaning of the life to come, and he gives us perspective on the beauty of grace. The writer Peter, he says, we live as aliens and sojourners, which means that we are fully present and engaged here and now, but we are fully aware that this life is not all there is. Do you live like that? Has the gospel colored your perspective like that? When you come into worship, when you step into the sanctuary, do you feel that the storylines of the world are being exposed? Can you see and feel Jesus for who he is and what he's done? Do you see the value of mercy and grace? And does it give way to joy in your life? And there's so much tension in this man's heart when he was comparing his life to those who seemed to have everything. But then he saw Jesus. When he caught a glimpse of the sacrifice, he goes, man, there's nothing on this planet that I could have more than what he has given me. We are the most blessed of anyone because of who Jesus is. And what Jesus has done. Point of clarity in his life. Let me take it to this last part. Treasuring Jesus. Treasuring Christ. Verse 21. Let's look there. The writer says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. How do you move from knowing about Christ to actually treasuring Jesus? Because whatever you treasure actually gives shape to the rest of your life. And if you do not treasure Jesus, he will not be enough to color your perspective. In verse 22, in verse 22, the psalmist thinks about his life and he comes to an awareness of the depth of his own self-interest, of his own sin. And he sees something within himself, this innate, deep self-will that does not want to submit to God. Very rarely in the Psalms or in the Scriptures do you see language like this, but he says, I was like a beast towards you. He goes, there's something innate in me, animal-like, that says, I, don't want, to re- I want to refuse at all times to submit to the will of God. I would rather do what I want to do. I don't want to submit at all. He goes, that's just so animal-like. It's instinctive. Selfishness is a part of who I am. But until Jesus comes in to break that, there's no way for that to change in my life. He began to see that for the first time. It's a self-reckoning. This is something that the Holy Spirit does in us and through us. We need this sort of understanding of the self. I was like a brute beast, an animal-like in my selfishness and my refusal to submit. Deep humility. He begins to see himself properly. But then verse 23 brings this explosive word of grace where he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Look, when my children start to get upset, when they start to throw a tantrum and I'm walking down the street with their hand, it is my tendency to want to let go. When they start to act like little children, when they start to act like animals, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. This God says, I'm continually with you. You've treated me like a beast. The instinct of your heart is to run and rebel. He goes, but nevertheless, I'm always with you. My right hand will hold you. I'm not going to let go. See, and this led this man to declare, as he wrapped his heart around that, he declares nothing on earth that he desires is greater than this God. That's treasuring. It comes from recognition. It comes from humility. It comes from worship. And then it comes through telling. This is where he concludes in this last verse. Telling is part of treasuring. We always talk about the things that we treasure the most. Telling completes it. And this is where he concludes in verse 28. He says, I will tell of all your works. When Jesus becomes so prevalent in your life that you actually begin to talk about him, then you know that you've begun to treasure him. And it's easy to treasure him when you know how much he treasures you. Think about your vocabulary. Do you speak of him? Do you speak of him to anyone else? To your children? To your spouse? We always speak of the things we treasure. Jesus is continually speaking of you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. You're always on his mind. The Bible says that you are the apple of his eye. He is treasuring you even now. It's easy to treasure a God like that. For it to go from intellect, right, to heart. It takes humility. It takes worship. And it takes speaking. This cry for perspective. Think for a moment as I wrap up. What in your life needs to shift? In what ways can coming into the sanctuary to see God more clearly and to treasure the gospel, can it shift your life? Is there something that the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart? Some conversation you need to have, something at work that needs to shift, a perspective. Let him have it. Let him have it. This is where the good stuff always happens. It can feel uncomfortable in the moment, but it's always an uncomfortable grace. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful, that you're near, and that you're resilient, that you won't leave us, that no matter what we show you, the brutishness, the animal-like instinct in each of us to live for ourselves, you're just going to keep coming. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the way in which your servant who wrote Psalm 73 was so candid. Many of us feel that way. Oh Lord, all in vain have I followed you. Why is my life not easier? Why are you not closer? Why don't I feel more of you? Why do people who don't know you have more? Lord Jesus, may those answers come even if just in part, as we see Jesus. As we see him crucified. As we see him say, I'll cover you. Lord, the treachery of the wicked, the storyline is going to come to an end one day and they're going to see truly that this version of power, the world's vision of power is just an illusion. It's just a dream. I admit that I want it. That I see it. A sensory experience translates into a spiritual reality. My heart gets envious and hard. But until I see my true self, until the Holy Spirit comes in to break my heart, there won't be real treasury. Help us to see ourselves, your love, your forgiveness, redemption again. We have been healed. We have been set free. We are welcomed home. And that will last forever. Even as we sing these last songs, would you change our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name.